This morning I get the privilege uh, of, of speaking this morning, and I'll just say this. You may have noticed that you had a green sheet on uh, your chair, and you're like, what in the world is that? So I'm just going to give you this preface. I'm taking you to youth group today. As I'm the high school pastor, sometimes we do things like this. Save this for the end of the service. It will make a ton of more sense at that point in time. Um, so if you're a doodler, that's fine. I just ask that you keep one side clear for later on. Sound good? All right. So as some of you know, we've been going through our series, What's Normal Anyway? What should the Christian life look like? And so this is week three. Um, and again, how does this work? How does a normal Christian life work? Um, what does that mean for us? What's normal about it? Um, with everything else in the world saying that this is normal, we really need to kind of refocus and, and say what should be normal for us as believers. And in case you've missed the first two weeks, we've kind of set the stage and said that for the next 20 or so weeks, um, going through May, we're going to try to define this in different ways. We're going to look at different characteristics and different qualities that we have in the life of a believer and how that defines normal for us. And the great thing is that his word is timeless. So we go to the word to find out what that means. And so even though this was written 2,000 years ago, we can find um, truth in, in, in application for our lives today. So throughout these next few months, we're going to narrow our focus just on the book of Acts uh, and see what that has to say for us. And I, I'm kind of thrilled about this because I think Acts is really the best place for us to go. I mean, where else are you going to find the normal Christian life? Everything up until that point is uh, before Christ. I mean, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell us about Jesus' life and his teachings, so we can take a lot of principles from that. But then we get to see in the book of Acts, how do they really make that work? What does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? And we get a lot of different examples. And so the believers start to act on that. They start to do things with that teaching and Jesus' example. Because he's gone. He's ascended into heaven, and he sent his Holy Spirit down for each one of us. And so now the life of the believer moves on. So, it's interesting to look at how they lived. What was a spiritually normal life supposed to be like? These people had walked with Christ. They had heard his teachings. They watched the example of his life or... Maybe if they didn't get to see all of this or hear it firsthand, they were able to talk with people who did. They were able to discuss that with them and see what that looked like. So now we get to investigate these examples, excuse me, and uh, hopefully begin to model our lives accordingly. So we're going to do a quick recap of the first two weeks. In week one, we saw that a normal life is one that is devoted to prayer. And we saw that the, there is a great importance in, of prayer in our lives. They made it a regular practice to pray. They prayed with other believers frequently, and at times they combined it with fasting. Then last week, Pastor Mark uh, taught that a normal life is one that is filled with worship to God, and how worship is really our uh, reflection back on his revelation to, of his love to us, and how we in our lives can express back our gratefulness, our gratitude, our love to him for what he's done. So, in case you've missed these two weeks, I encourage you to go out um, on the website, check out the podcasts, 
um, listen to them. Uh, they, I think these were very powerful services. I've gone back even to just listen to bits and pieces of them, just as reminders for myself. Okay, how can I really incorporate this into my life? So, now we're going to look at the next activity or quality of a Christian life that was normal for them. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures, so I'm going to just tell you, be ready to be flipping and, and, and that kind of thing, um, or scrolling as the case may be. But as I read through the book of Acts, I see this quality over and over, and how it just plays out, and it's, it's a very necessary thing. A normal Christian life is one where we are mentoring people, where we are instilling things into their lives. So let's look at how it all began, Acts 2, verse 41. It says, those who accepted this message, or his message. Okay, so this is Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. All right, so hopefully we're all tracking together. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I want you to picture this scene for a little bit. It's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on about 120 people who were praying together. And because they are making such a ruckus, a crowd gathers. They're thinking, what is going on? And they're saying, those people are crazy folk, right? They're like, what is going on? They don't make any sense. They're talking, they're talking crazy. But Peter gets up. And he preaches the gospel message in order to explain what's going on. And as a result, we find that their hearts are convicted, and about 3,000 people repent and become believers that day. Now, let's put this into further perspective, because as I really thought about this, it kind of was like the light bulb went on. So, who in here likes babies? Okay, babies are fun, right? Babies are cute. They're fun to hold. You just kind of look at them. And sometimes, you know, some of the best times were when they were asleep because they were just, you know, like everything was good in the world, right? You just, if you had children or nieces and nephews and things like that, you just kind of watch that and you see uh, how precious and how adorable. Now, if you're like me with my children when they were babies, it was also a great time and an excuse to take a nap when they were napping, right? Oh, they, they needed a nap, so I needed to hold them. Now, uh, there is the flip side, right? The flip side of that cuteness, though, is that babies take a lot of work. They have to be fed and changed. They have to be burped and changed. They have to be carried around and changed, right? Right? I think you get the point. There's a lot of work that goes around with them. Now, new believers can be a lot like babies. There's going to be a lot of work because they need help figuring this out. How does this Christian life work? I've just said, yes, I'm, I'm signing on the dotted line, but what, but what now? What do I do? Feed me. I'm hungry for more. Or, oops, I just soiled myself with sin again. Okay? Will I still make it into heaven? You know, as a new believer, you have all these thoughts and questions going on. So imagine the scene on the day of Pentecost when 
You now have 3,000 new babies coming along, and they're all like, feed me, feed me, feed me. Okay, I have this picture, you know, those cartoons where you've got these like crazy babies coming along, feed me. I'm like, oh, look out. Thankfully, Peter didn't run away, because I probably would have. I'd be like, no, I'm not touching that. But he started to work with them. And they began, as the disciple team, to help them with this new life. Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Peter and the crew started to teach them about Jesus, his example, his life and teachings. And by fellowshipping, they were interacting with them. They were spending time with them. They were investing of their own lives into their lives, loving them, supporting them, encouraging them. Now, Acts 2.42 may be a little bit of a general statement. You say, okay, that's nice, but what does that really look like? What does that mean? How do, how do, I, how do I play out this idea of mentoring people? Flip a couple pages to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at Acts 8 and start at verse 32. And we come to a story here about Philip. Philip has just recently been named one of the deacons of the church as they were continuing to grow and need different things. And at this point, we come to a story where Philip is prompted by the Holy Spirit to go out um, and start traveling on a desert road. He's told, you know what, leave Jerusalem and start walking down the desert road down to Gaza. And it will, it will come to be that you'll see what's going on. And on the road, he runs into an Ethiopian eunuch who's traveling. He's just been worshiping um, with what he knew um, in Jerusalem. So we pick up the story in verse 32. And it says, this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. So, one way that mentoring people can play out is when we teach them God's truth. In this passage, the Ethiopian was reading from the book of Isaiah, and it didn't make a lot of sense to him. Not all the dots were connecting. You know, what in the world is this saying? I know I've had times in my life where I read and I'm like, I have to read it four or five times because it's just not clicking. What, is, what, are, what are they saying? Who is this about, he's asking. And I think, thankfully, Philip had just finished the early Greek version of experiencing God. Okay? <laughs> so he noticed that God was at work here. And he was inviting Philip to join with him and speak to the Ethiopian eunuch. Didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew something was going on. So let's, let's, let's go from there. Philip was able to talk to the Ethiopian about Jesus. He told him about all that he did, 
what his teachings were, his sacrificial death, and then his amazing resurrection. And this message of Jesus, this revelation, touched the Ethiopians so much that when they came to some water, he said, let's get baptized. I think that'd be a good thing. I like what I am hearing, and I want to follow Christ. And what better way to signify that and to move forward is by being baptized right here, right now. And I think when we take the time to speak to others about Christ, to answer the questions that they have about what the scriptures are talking about, what it all means, or how his word relates to current topics and issues, God can begin to open their heart for that revelation of of what he's trying to speak to them. And he can change their lives. I think we can all testify that at one point or another, we've had that type of experience where, you know what, our hearts have been so prompted that, yes, I want to follow Christ from this point forward. And I think watching the truth and reality of God's word click for someone is really exciting. When all of a sudden they grab a hold of it and they take it, and you know what, I'm taking it as my own and I want to follow Christ, there's probably almost nothing better than that than to see someone come to Christ and begin to really absorb it into their lives and how it can work from there. And I think so many times our Sunday school teachers or our our Wednesday night class teachers, um, the different people who teach in Bible studies, this is a great avenue for that where I'm just, we're teaching what God's word is saying and, and not just teaching what it's saying, but how does that look like for us? What does that mean? Now, another example of this occurs in Acts chapter 18. So if you want to turn there, uh, we're going to start reading at verse 24 in just a moment. And here, Luke is going to relay the story of uh, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And they come on the scene in Acts 18, and they're going to be working with another man by the name of Apollos. And This is what it says. Verse 24 of chapter 18 says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So get this. Apollos is a pretty smart guy. He's got a very solid understanding of the scriptures. He knows what they say, and he knows even about Jesus. And he's teaching about Jesus, even though it's just kind of facts. He knows the facts. Jesus lived. You know what? He was just crucified, um, they, and they, he was raised again from the dead. But he didn't have the full picture of Jesus. And whatever he was preaching and teaching... Priscilla and Aquila said, you know what? I think there's something more that we need to talk to him about. There's something that he's missing. So in verse 26, it goes on and he says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. 
So again, Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollo's teaching in the synagogue, and they decided, you know what, I think it would be wise of us to work with him a little bit and explain the way of God more adequately. Let him get the full picture. Because sometimes when you have the full picture, things make a lot more sense, right? At work, when you are told, do this, okay, you do that. But when you get the full picture of why, doesn't it seem like, ah, it makes more sense. Now I understand. Okay, now I get why I'm doing this rather than, you know, crunching numbers for no apparent reason. Um, So they decided to try to make the gospel more clear. And did you notice how they did it? They invited him to their home. They invited him in. They took of their resources and brought him in and, you know, did it just in a nice, comfortable environment. Talked about the things of God, about who Jesus really was, what his life really meant, how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection had impacted their own lives because they had obviously been converted and and heard about what Jesus had done And they really were grateful for that. So because of their time and teaching, their investment in Apollos, they prepared Apollos for his next move. And he left Apollos, he went, or he left Ephesus, went over to Achaia or southern Greece. And because of the mentoring that had occurred in his life, he was able to vigorously uh, debate and, and defend against the Jewish opposition, who was speaking against everything that the believers were going through at that point. And so he was able to prove that Jesus was the Messiah using Scripture. Isn't that a great thing? I can use the things that were common between the two groups and show this is what Scripture says, here's what Jesus did, the two line up. And so Jesus really is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. And because Priscilla and Aquila took the time to mentor him, to teach him and explain the scriptures further, all of this was able to take place. So that's one way that we can mentor people, is by teaching them God's truth. Another way we mentor people occurs when we show them how to live a godly life. With your Bible, I want you to keep your finger in Acts, but flip to Titus. So a little bit more towards the back. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2. And as you turn there, let me set this up. So again, Titus chapter 2. And Titus is a book where Paul is writing to a young pastor, ironically enough, named Titus, who Paul had left on the island of Crete. They had gone there um, evangelizing and working with uh, the believers there helping them to grow. And and Paul left Titus on that island to continue the work, to help to develop the converts and help them understand the truth um, of God. So Titus chapter 2, we're going to look at a few verses starting at verse 1. So Paul writes, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, in sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, 
to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. So, Paul is coaching Titus on what the Cretan believers need to be taught. And so, to do that, he walks through different segments of the people. He walks through and says, there's these different groups, and here are some things that we noticed while we were there that need to be addressed. Paul points out that the older men need to learn to be respectable and self-controlled. Stop carousing, stop you know, running around, doing every you know, crazy thing that you think you feel like doing. They need to be respectable, they need to be self-controlled, and they need to become examples for others to be able to follow. The older women as well, they need to quit being slanderers and drunks. I mean, he's very blatant there. You know what? Older women, quit going to the bars every night. You need to just chill out, and you also need to become an example. You need to become more moral and reverent and holy in the way that you live your life. And then I think Paul makes a significant point in verse 4. And he's kind of tying the older women and the younger women together. I think this can really apply to all of us, though. That as they became reverent and holy in their daily lives, that in verse 4, then they can train the younger women. So as the older men and women start to follow godly lifestyles, then they can become models to the younger men and women. Like, this is how it works. This is how, because of what Christ has done in me, this is how we should be living life. We shouldn't be doing some of the things that we did in the past. And that as they become models to the younger men and women, to those coming behind them, you know, walking through life, they start to see that, you know what, I need to clean up my life. I need to walk according to God's principles. And the younger people, Paul is saying, will notice, and they'll begin to imitate those habits. They're going to see, oh, This is how it works. This is how it plays out. And the key is that they will train the younger ones in living the Christian life. And I think this concept corresponds with Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think if we've been around the church for a while, we've heard that time and time again. Train up a child in the way he should go, and he will never depart from it. And I think that principle holds true, and it's supported even by a recent Barna Group study that talks about why millennials stay connected to the church. Now, if you're not familiar with that, millennials are defined as our people group um, that was born between the years of 1984 and 2002. So there's this millennial generation that's out there. And this study focused on those millennials who are now adults, who had had some background in the church, um, but now they've, they've kind of progressed in life. They're graduated, they're starting college careers, etc. So they're focusing on people kind of between the ages of 18 and 29, this study that just came out last year. And they found that 59% of those who stayed active in the church in this age group, they stayed connected to the church because they had a po- close personal friend who was an adult at the church. It went further and found that 28% of those who were still connected to the church had an adult mentor at church, 
other than the pastor or church staff. I think that's a very interesting statistic to see that those who have a connection with someone at church, even aside from their peers, aside from their parents, aside from their family, are more likely to stay connected to church. Because here's the other side of it. Of those who had dropped out of the church, only 31% had a, a close personal friend at church who was an adult. And of that, or the other statistic is only 11% of those who dropped out had an adult mentor at church. So there is definitely a benefit when we invest in young people. As an example, as we invest in people so that they can grow and see how do we live a godly life. And I think as parents, we have that responsibility to, to teach our, our children the right path. But I think it needs to even go beyond that, that it's not just us speaking to them, but it's also others in the church coming alongside and speaking the truth of God's word into their lives as well. So when we take the time to mentor and show them the right path for godly living, it can make a significant impact in that individual's life. One that can be far-reaching and long-lasting, maybe even more than we ever would imagine. We may think, oh, you know what, I'm just going out for coffee with them. That could mean the world to someone just because we're taking time, we're building a relationship, we're speaking truth and life into their lives. So we can mentor people by teaching them God's truth. We can mentor people by showing them how to live a godly life. A third way we mentor people happens when we come along some, alongside someone and we encourage them to grow. Encourage them to grow. So we're going to flip back to Acts and we're going to look at Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at Acts 9.26. And again, let me set the stage while you're turning there. So Paul, who in this chapter is known as Saul, was someone who had been persecuting the church. He'd been going around murdering believers, throwing them into prison, and uh, just causing a lot of chaos for the church at that point in time. But on one occasion, he had an encounter with Jesus uh, on one of his missions to Damascus. And he's been converted. And he even had begun to preach about Jesus being the Son of God in Damascus. So let's look at verse 26, Acts chapter 9. It says, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Okay? So picture it. Saul is a known Christian killer to these believers in Jerusalem. They've heard him. They've heard about his reputation. They know all the horror stories about what he's done all across the land of Israel. And now he had even gone up to Damascus, so you couldn't even flee there. It seemed like no one and nowhere was safe, in a sense. So imagine their surprise 
when he comes to Jerusalem and claims that he's a fellow believer. I think I understand their hesitation to embrace him with wide open arms. Oh, come here, Brother Saul. Maybe I've watched a few too many covert spy movies or television shows. You know, when the guy goes undercover to infiltrate and destroy the enemy um, organization. So when Paul comes in saying, hey guys, I'm a believer too. I'm a follower of the way. I'd be like, yeah, right. Mama didn't make no fool. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm not buying that quite yet. You've come here. You're trying to infiltrate us. You're trying to learn all about us, find out where we live, where we meet, how extensive our network of believers is, see where our next church plant is, and you're trying to destroy us. And obviously I've seen too many spy movies because I think you're trying to pick us off one by one before we even can get aware of it and figure it all out. So that's just my imagination running away with me. But I think you get the point that these Jerusalem believers are a little hesitant to take him in as one of their own. But thank God for Barnabas, though, right? He came alongside Saul. He came along, put his arm around him, and he said, you know what, let's go to the apostles together. Let's go see them. Because I believe this is true. I believe, and I'm going to vouch for you, Saul, that what has happened is real in your life. And I think that you've been converted. So he goes and he, he vouches for him, tells him that I believe this, this is the real deal. There's nothing fake about this. There's no hidden motives. Because he's already been preaching fearlessly in the city of Damascus. And it's because he was preaching in Damascus that he's here now because his life was threatened up there. He was almost killed, and the reason he's down here now is because they needed to get him out of Dodge um, real quick. And because of Barnabas' actions on Saul's behalf, Saul begins to interact with the other believers, and he begins to grow and flourish there. We see that he's speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So much so that in verses 29 and 30, we could continue to read on that the Grecian Jews were plotting to kill Saul because of this. And then the believers send him out of Jerusalem and off to the city of Tarsus for his own safety, back to his old hometown. But then in Acts chapter 11, we see kind of the next step in the story. Like I said, I'm I'm taking you all over. Bear with me. We're almost there. So in Acts chapter 11, we see that Barnabas tries to reconnect with Saul. Barnabas had gone to the city of Antioch because there was a lot of new believers turning to the Lord at that point. And he's encouraging these people to remain true to the Lord. But he has this thought all of a sudden, hey, I could use Saul to help me here. He would be a great asset in this situation working with these new believers. So let's look at Acts 11.25. Acts 11.25 says this, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. I think this is so key because Barnabas went after Saul and brought him back in after a few years. It had been a few years since they had sent him up to Tarsus. But he went and he said, Saul would be great in this situation because he is a good speaker 
He knows his scripture. He can talk to these people and help them to see as well. And I think he would be a great, he has a great talent and ability for speaking and teaching. Let's utilize this. So he didn't want that ability to be squandered, so he worked with it. And he brought him back, and he encouraged Saul then to keep growing, to keep using that talent, to teach people, you know this stuff, let's start to use that. You can impart wisdom and application for them to keep growing. These are new believers. You've had a few years now. You know what to say. Let's, let's use this God-given ability to teach others and speak in public. For me, I had a music pastor um, named Dave uh, who poured into me in such a way. And I was about 20 years old at the time, and my experience consisted of playing keyboard in youth group, and over the, the previous year, I had started to lead worship uh, because the old youth pastor had left, and the, the guy who was going to start speaking um, wasn't uh, a singer or musician by any stretch of the imagination. So it fell on me, and I started you know, plunking out my uh, 8 to 10 choruses, and it was a every other week rotation uh, on what songs we did. But Dave came on a few months after that uh, as the new uh, music pastor, and he started working with me on my piano playing. My piano playing had consisted of reading notes, and that was that was it. Chords and, and you know, what do I do when there's just that letter there? That was all new to me. And so I needed to figure out how that was going to work, how that was going to look, and, and what we could do with that. So he taught me that I didn't have to rely on written music as much. I didn't, I could focus a little bit more on chord sheets, but really start to listen to the music, hear where we were going, where we were progressing, and how to play in a worship team setting, to add musical fill-ins where appropriate, and um, go from there. And then he started to work with me on worship leading, because to that point, again, my Ability and, and my experience was youth group. Okay, um, so leading in big people church—that was a really daunting thing, you know. And I'm uh, I'm probably a little more on the timid side when it comes to those types of things. That you know, I, I'm just a 20-year-old guy. There's there's people who are older than I am. And, you know, they've had experience in the church for a long number of years. For me to get up there, I'm, gonna, I'm probably too immature. I'm too young uh, to do this kind of thing. And maybe I still am. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but after a few pointers during practice, all of a sudden we'd be practicing uh, for a Sunday night service. So we had service every Sunday night at that point in time. And we'd be practicing and, and playing and going through things, and you know, it would be five minutes before service, and, hey, why don't you lead tonight? Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, the wave of panic comes down and instant you know, sweat stains underneath, and, oh, good Lord, what am I going to do? But we'd gone through the music, I was familiar with it, and... It, that was a great opportunity for me to just start to develop that. And he would talk with me and continue to coach me on what I was doing. 
you know, we had the different signs for where we were going, and that way you could communicate with the whole team as you're, as you're worshiping. And so he taught me not only that side of it, but also how to be sensitive to what God was trying to do during the worship time and what he was trying to, you know, speak and lead us through during the service and how to, as a musician, play and lead appropriately from there. And he saw something in me, and he began to help me develop and refine that gift. And through that, I think that now I have something that I can do to help in the church, to, to be a part and, and to help minister and, and help uh, the kingdom of God. And so what I think is key is that it's a thrill for us when we can see and help someone develop an ability and grow in that and see how they can use that for the kingdom. And I think this can look like many different things. For Barnabas, it was pulling Saul kind of back into, um, into focus and that, you know what, I think that you should start teaching and speaking to the people, helping them to understand what our faith is all about and what that means for us every day. For Dave, it was pushing me to lead worship and to do that from time to time. You know, someone may have a desire to learn to play guitar, so maybe they can get connected with a guitar player or a drummer to a drummist. You know, maybe it's someone who has an interest in designing uh, posters and artwork and, and that type of thing. Maybe they can get introduced to a graphic designer who will kind of take them under their wing and see, this is what you do, and here's some different tools that you can use. Maybe it's a young person who would love to bless people by changing other people's oil on their cars. And someone would come alongside them to show them how it's done. Just, you know what, I can bless someone by changing their oil. If that's something that they normally do, that's 30 minutes to save their time. If not, maybe that's saving them, you know, 25 bucks um, from going to the oil change place. The examples could go on and on. I think there's many different ways. It's not limited to things that are on the platform or uh, anything like that. There are so many ways that we can help people to grow in the natural gifts and abilities that God has given them. So we mentor people when we teach them God's truth, when we show them how to live godly lives, and when we encourage them to grow in their faith and in their abilities. So now we know kind of the what about mentoring people. So what does this mean for each one of us today? Every single one of us in here, I think, can be a mentor to someone else. It can be an older man mentoring a younger man. Maybe it's a high school student mentoring a middle school student. Maybe it's a college student mentoring a high school student. Maybe it's someone who's new in their career mentoring someone who's in college. I think you see a little bit of the progression. Maybe it's a grandma mentoring a mom of three small children who looks like they are frazzled beyond belief and just need a little bit of rest. But having that relationship to just help them talk through things. It could even be a man who's been saved for just a couple of years, mentoring someone that's been saved for only the last few months. We all have things that we can offer and share about our experience with God our experience in the Christ life. And each one of us can be a mentor to someone else, I believe. And it should be a normal outflow of who we are as believers. So today in these closing moments, I want us to do something together. 
And like I said, I'm going to take you to youth group for just a couple minutes. Because in youth group, we've been talking lately about being purposeful about following Christ. And to do that, we sometimes have to write things down as a reminder for ourselves. Because we can, we can hear this, we can talk about it, and so then it's all here. But sometimes we need to let it come down a little further, let it come into our heart, let it come into, okay, how do I make this work? So, to do this, we sometimes write things down. So, now, here's your green sheets. I want you to do a similar thing here today. Take that green sheet of paper, and I want you to think about one person or a few people that you could be a mentor to. And maybe, maybe you don't have specific names. Maybe it's kind of a group. Like, I'm not sure who specifically, but maybe it's this type of group. Who is it that we can pour into? Maybe we need to ask ourselves, who is it that I can teach and explain God's truth to? Or who can we intentionally show how to live a godly life? Who can we come alongside and encourage them to grow, either in their faith or their abilities? Who is that person that God is laying on your heart? Who can you be a Barnabas to? Who can you be a Philip to? Who can you be a Priscilla or Aquila to? And maybe it's more than one, but I think it's good for us to write that person's name down as a reminder to ourselves. So just take a moment right now to do that. To just think and see who God might be laying on your heart. Alright, as you're wrapping up doing that, these are for you to take with you. You're not turning them in. You're not being graded. But these, this should, hopefully you can take this home with you and have this somewhere as a reminder for yourself. Maybe it's on your nightstand. Maybe it's your refrigerator. Maybe it's in your Bible. And as you read, maybe that's your bookmark and it's that reminder to say, I want to pray with them. I want to help them. But before you maybe put them completely away can we just pray over them I think that would be a great way for us to kind of close this out today that we want to have this normal lifestyle of mentoring people it could be a peer who just isn't as far along in their walk as you are it could be you know a generational thing but I think it would be good for us to, to pray over these and see where God would lead this. So Lord, we just thank you for these examples that you've given us today. We thank you that we can see how the early believers were all about mentoring people, helping them to grow, helping them to understand God's truth in their lives, helping them to see how, what it means to live a godly life and how that works. And helping people to grow in some of their abilities and how they can use that.